Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and for a very rare treat, I am sitting in a room with other humans recording the podcast today, which is quite lovely. Uh, we are back in Peter Katz's office, and Peter, you're here with us. Lovely to be back in person. Yeah, it's wonderful to be back together again. Yes, yeah. It's like time has evaporated. <laughs> the only shame is uh, we don't get to enjoy your Zoom backgrounds today. Well, that's right. In, in real time. Um, I've also got Sue Grimmett here in the office as well. Sue, and we were just saying before, it's been over a year since uh, we have sat together in person to record a podcast, so this does feel a bit odd to us, doesn't it? It, it is very odd, and remembering how to hold the microphone again <laughs> yes but it is lovely to be back here and uh and i imagine in the the months ahead we may be doing quite a few more back in person so this is quite exciting now uh and we're we're very grateful um for the guests we have joining us today uh the reverend andrew cooper he is currently the priest in charge at st john the baptist anglican church in belimba here in queensland um, but that is just the latest chapter in what is a very long um very story long story yeah. <laughs> um, so look andrew firstly thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast really appreciate you making time thank you no it's great to be here um again it's a, a long time since i was in this room i did part of my uh, formation training here at the cathedral and um peter was actually one of my formators mm. so it's his fault that uh, <laughs> i am some of the way that i am <laughs> liturgically <laughs> wonderful well we're going to share a conversation today that's going to have some sensitive areas probably for a number of people and, and a number of our listeners um, I would think from the conversations we've had uh, on this podcast and then each of us individually with people who've listened to the podcast, we're probably exploring themes that, um, that are present in, in the lives of many who have listened and are part of the On The Way community, I suppose, uh, because we are looking at spiritual and religious trauma. And we're going to do that, I suppose, initially, Andrew, through the context of, uh, of your story and how that relates to um, your lived experience. Just before we hear a little bit about that, could you maybe share with us like a, a working definition of what, what you mean when we use the phrase um, spiritual and religious trauma? Oh, okay. Well, look, I, um, I'm pretty new to this kind of world. And so I'm like sharing a very novice understanding of all of this stuff myself. So look, um, there, in the last 20 years or so, there's been a, a deeper awareness of the impact on trauma uh, on many areas of life. Um, but I think uh, the whole idea about religious trauma, uh, from what I can understand, there's a psychologist in the States, um, uh, what's her name, and I've just lost that. Yeah, uh, Marlene Winnell was the first one to kind of publish around um, the whole idea of religious trauma, and she referred to religious trauma syndrome. Now, the thing around... Um, I'm learning is that religious trauma syndrome is a, is a debatable kind of term. It's not yet in the DSM, which is the mental health um, manual, but there's about 20 years worth of research and um, uh, investigation and uh, uh, reflection and, and peer review stuff going on about that because it usually takes around mm. 20 years to get something into uh, the DSM. So religious trauma is really about, um, well, I'll, I'll use her words because she's probably more of an ex expert, the condition experienced by people who are struggling with either leaving or living in an authoritarian or dogmatic religion and, and perhaps at its extreme end coping with the damage of indoctrination. Um, so often when they talk about syndrome, religious trauma syndrome, it's often around um, people who are leaving um, quite fundamentalist groups. Mm. I'd probably want to dial that back 
a little bit and for me personally to talk more about uh, perhaps religious and spiritual trauma as that experienced by people um, probably within the kind of normal context of mainstream religion and and so basically it's uh, from my understanding and from my experience it's how um, the uh, experience of teachings and practices have um, impacted on the mental health of um, uh, in my case particularly queer folk um, but religious trauma is is right across the board into many places and I think one of the the things I'm learning about um, any kind of trauma based stuff is the mental physical connection mm. and so with uh, my experience of uh, religious trauma it's about how that might manifest itself both in terms of behaviours and um, reactions but also in the body and, and the somatic stuff. I'm learning that's the term. Mm. Um, the somatic behaviours that can be triggered by trauma experiences in the spiritual context. So I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely does. Yeah. And, and I think it's probably also worth mentioning anytime you do strain into conversations like this, and I know we've mentioned this maybe a couple of times before on the podcast in our history, but there might be people listening who at the moment, at this point of the episode, would think, I haven't been subject to religious spiritual trauma. They wouldn't put that label to it. And over the next 45 minutes or an hour, it may dawn on them that is actually exactly what I've experienced because mm. often, you know, there, there can be gaslighting and things like that involved in, in this as mm. well where, you, mm. you know, when the rest of the community sees it one way and keeps telling you that that's how they see it, you don't actually realise it's an unhealthy experience. You think it is just the experience. Mm. Mm. So um, so we'll, we'll tread compassionately as we make our way forward. I suppose I'd love to hear now, uh, Andrew, a bit about your own story. And I don't know where you think the best um, <laughs> launching point with that is. To pick up around that. Where to start? Oh, dear. I um, hope all the listeners have got a bottle of red wine and a <laughs> box of tissues because it usually <laughs> takes that. Look, the, the thing for me is, I suppose, uh, what I'm learning around uh, why I would perhaps identify more with these times of um, religious trauma is... Um, that it's not necessarily um, an experience of massive um, particular abuse situations, although there are. Mm. And so if I look at my own journey, there are particular events that were probably particular formative and triggering events. Um, I'd say one of the things I'm learning about religious trauma is that um, alongside that is um, the... Uh, the impact of often, in my case, 40 years of almost like the drip on the rock, the, the constant messaging around um, that who you are as a person is unworthy in the sight of God and that the only way for you to um, uh, have any kind of well, salvation or at oneness with God is to die to a particular part of yourself. And so deeply embedded into our theology are those messages around dying to self, um, which is a great concept on one level. Um, but for a queer person, um, that message about dying, particularly in our spiritual life, um, is particularly harmful. And that's probably something that I'm kind of grappling with um, a little bit at the moment and reacting really strongly to that. 
Um, I grew up ghetto Catholic. You know, my mum and dad were very deeply involved in um, the Catholic Church in Tasmania. Um, I went straight from Catholic school to Catholic Teachers College um, into the seminary. And, um, and a lot of that was really positive. Like, you know, like it was beautiful roots and all of that. And I'd say I'd take away from that, you know, the core of who I am. And that's the other issue around religious and spiritual trauma is that the thing that gives you most hope and light and life is also the thing that is your experience of abuse and toxic um, messages. Mm. And so trying to kind of uh, find a place of health um, in a place that actually causes you trauma <laughs> is the big struggle around it. Um, look, I, I could identify over the years various kind of um, uh, experiences, some of them really overt. You know, when I went to um, the seminary within the first half hour of us being there, we were told uh, if you are found in someone else's room, you will be sent home immediately. And so that whole messaging around um, the shaming of um, uh, involved in particularly around sexuality. And I mean, understandable on one level because I was joining a community that was um, based around celibacy and um, so there was a whole range of kind of messages around that. Um, I, I wasn't someone who grew up with a, an image of a, um, a kind of judgmental angry God sitting in the, um, in the sky and in fact my experience of God's probably the exact opposite of that. I mean I'm a child of the 70s post-Vatican II um, you know Catholic spirituality and at my confirmation at 13 or whatever it was um, I was given a holy card of the surfy Jesus so you know bearded this handsome bearded man and I fell in love with him. I didn't ever really take on board that kind of God in the sky, judgmental God stuff. Where my, I suppose, my journey of uh, understanding about spiritual and religious trauma is probably got more to do with, not so much with God, but with God's people and the institution that, um, uh, that I've tried to live in uh, for most of my life. Mm. Yeah. Um, the... Uh, so, so, I, so as a young person, so I joined the seminary at 20, left pretty, you know, within a couple of years. Um, I left as a, 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 a queer person into um, the late 80s at the height of the beginnings of the uh, HIV um, crisis. And so the messaging I got at all levels, and so this is the other thing about religious trauma, I would say for me, is that it's... Uh, a blend also of what's going on in terms of um, institutionalised religion but also just society. And um, so basically that message about death and the potential to die just by being who you are, you know, and that, that horrific, those images uh, of the HIV campaigns of the, you know, the dead, the, the grim reaper rolling the ball down the thing, you know, constantly reinforcing that message that just by being who I am was a threat of risk of death, just not only to me but to everyone around me and so for me that stuff of uh, how to have a sense of self where the place of um, 
a, a kind of refuge from that was telling me a message that I wasn't um, a good, a right person in the eyes of God and um, also in society. And, you know, that constant stuff around uh, the search for safety. Um, a lot of queer people uh, would probably echo some of this, I suspect, around highly developed... Um, uh, coping mechanisms around um, self-protective behaviours. So constant vigilance, um, constant um, uh, checking to see, you know, like coming into a room and looking for where the exits are just in case you need to go. And I've realised that's become a really subconscious uh, and I've become more conscious of how subconscious that is, um, that when I would go into even a, a space like the cathedral, I would look for where the exits are and choose a seat that is somewhere close uh, to, to one of those exits. Um, I, I, that, that whole kind of um, worrying about how you present and how you um, speak, um, you know, am I sounding too queer, am I looking too queer, am I, you know, all of those kind of things, because particularly if I go into a church context, um, those things are noticed and uh, commented on. Even down to about that kind of stuff around uh, what what causes and things you attach yourself to, and you know it's very recently recent for me to be able to talk openly about being a queer person in the church, and that's come after like years of therapy, years of really good solid spiritual direction, um, and experience overseas of uh, working in the Scottish Episcopal Church, where of course they're all over the gay thing like we really don't care anymore over there and we're over it and um and also two bouts of cancer where basically now you reevaluate your whole life and i quite frankly don't give a fuck anymore <laughs> <laughs> so um the other thing for me and i will draw breath in a minute you can ask a question um is as i said there's there's a couple of significant events when i could go into those um, but it is that kind of, yeah, the constant drip of microaggressions, um, the turning on the radio and, and hearing um, the spokesperson for Christianity again giving the message that um, it, God hates fags, basically. It boils down to that, you know, like they can phrase it in whatever kind of lovely biblical <laughs> compassionate language, but it boils down to God hates fags. And what that does is every time a conservative evangelical or um, uh, a far-right um, Catholic gets up and makes any of those statements, it empowers um, the messages in society that says that I'm not a good person. And mm. so that's a, an aggression um, that I've become aware of, just how increasingly toxic that is for me. Yeah. yeah. And I know something we have spoken about before on the podcast, Sue, you in particular have touched on this, is that when people say things like this, they put a God gloss on, on really judgmental statements. So it's one thing to say to somebody, for example, I don't like who you are. But it's ontologically, cosmically, an entirely different thing to say God doesn't like who you mm, are. Mm. And that, that is, the, I guess, the, the heaviness that any comment that comes from a, a faith or spiritual space come, carries with it is we're not even stating opinions here. We're stating what God thinks and mm. what God believes. Mm. And so I'm just curious as, you know, you as a young man in the seminary, as I guess you're coming to terms with your, your um, sexuality uh, as, a, as a, what, early 20s? Early twenties, yeah, yeah, I was twenty when I when I 
when I went there. I right. was a, a child bride of Christ. At that time. <laughs> sure. So, so as you're wrestling with with what you know to be your your true self, mm. your identity, in a place that is not evidently supportive of that, can you tell us maybe a little bit about how difficult it was to come to that realization and and in a sense estrange yourself from that whole community? Yeah, look, I, I think for a, like I'm the la- almost probably the last of the generation of good Catholic boys, and I'll only talk about boys. I, uh, women and other folk will have their own stories around this, where um, going to the seminary as a queer person was a great an, an option in life. Um, and and in some ways initially, and I'd like to think there's a bit more to it than that, but, um, you know, as a, as a young queer guy, I didn't even have probably the language to even talk about it but a sense of knowing that okay the I'm, I'm I don't fit in with what other expectations might be about having a girlfriend and getting married and all that kind of stuff so the seminary was probably a really viable option and at that stage it was a bit like yeah well here's a whole lot of heap of other um passionate and engaged young people all together you know like I was in a class of five and there were about 10 others um we studied together at um uh, Yarra Theological Union in Melbourne and there probably would have been oh, another 30 or 40 young men um, there. There was a lot of energy, there was a lot of drive, there was a lot of passion, a lot of enthusiasm. Um, but also this deep undercurrent of, um, you know, in, in the Catholic world at that stage of um, suppression and um, sublimation. Mm. And uh, uh, and then, you know, that sense that if you did... Um, and, and sometimes the rules were unwritten... Um, and sometimes they were really overt. If you broke those rules, you know, well, you really didn't have a place here. So, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question, but um, for me, it was probably not language that I was able to use to describe what was going on, but a kind of deep sense of unease and uh, not rightness and, um, and and that kind of deep sense of not fitting in mm. and... Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so I left and then um, I had exactly the same experience in the queer community and that's, uh, at that time because I wasn't the kind of blonde, twinky, fit young man um, uh, and I didn't fit into the prevailing paradigm in the queer community either. Um, and so I didn't feel particularly safe in either place. And so that sense of kind of dislocation uh, connected in then with the constant messaging that you are not okay. Like I grew up in Tasmania. Um, It was illegal to um, express any form of um, uh, same-sex attraction in Tasmania until 1997. You know, so even um, that kind of sense that society looks at you and says that you are less than human um is 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 kind of just deeply ingrained and so that gets um uh if you like uh, uh, amplified when you go into religious contexts and so yeah so so where i am now with a lot of that is that i'm realizing the effects now in my 50s of that really early programming and those really early messages um, that were often given by really well-meaning people 
with no sense of uh, malice or or it just this is what the teaching of the church is this is um, what the expectations are this is uh, your pathway to spiritual fulfillment um, but the the kind of toxicness of that and so for me it's those kind of micro aggressions over four decades have now got me to that point where I need fairly significant intervention um, and I'm seeking assistance to kind of um, sort through um, that, that really fundamental basic stuff. Mm. So really important that you mention um, not feeling at home in the queer community either. Um, last year as part of our Pride observance we had a talking circle and the the subject was uh, coming out as christian in the gay community or oh, the, in, in the rainbow community <laughs> and and the stories of not belonging in either place were really profound mm. um, as people shared the fact that having a faith made them uh, an alien to the the, the rainbow community because of the effect that the church had had on so many members of the rainbow community who'd walked away from the church mm. and, and being treated like some sort of fool mm. for wanting to explore spirituality or, or, or worse than being treated as a fool. So mm. just shows how important um, safe places are and how all communities can become quite toxic if, mm. if they don't really focus on people as people rather than people as concepts. Absolutely, and and that's why in a lot of ways I've always been very uh, reluctant to identify with movements or groups. Mm. Um, you know, I, I'm deeply ambivalent around um, Pride Week events or um, being, you know, I was invited to come and, and preside at the um, Affirming Mass uh, here the other week and I still don't feel safe enough to publicly identify in those spaces mm. yet. Yeah. And that, I guess that shows how deep these currents run and I know obviously in your story it's around um, sexual orientation but yeah. I imagine there are listeners who can identify spiritual and religious trauma in relation to um, marriage, to mm. family yeah. uh, setups, to all sorts of different things. Basically whenever you've been given this message that um, there is something ontologically wrong with you that the way you were made was wrong and that the creator is not happy with it and, and demands that you live in this certain way mm. that the right way to live goes against what you believe or feel in yourself as the right way to live is where the damage is caused. Is that, um? I mean, Sue, we've spoken before about areas of um, spiritual and religious trauma, maybe without using this particular label and this particular language. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the diversity of the ways in which this can manifest in people's lives... Mm. Do you think um, how important is it to understand that it does have? I guess it's like like Hydra. It has the it's the many-headed beast in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a couple. Of, there's one theme that Andrew picked up on, and he said dying to self. And there's some really rich parts of Christian theology that if we get them twisted and wrong, they are just so dangerous and so harmful. And that, I think, is one thing that might connect to some of the different abuses, mm -hmm. the different forms of spiritual abuse. For me, uh, the, it's when people like kenosis is a beautiful part that means the self-emptying nature of God and that we are also called to be self-emptying. That was the one that triggered me a while back. 
um, and, and interesting physically too, when we're talking about kenosis and having to be self-giving because in the same way that dying to self can mean a loss of who you are and you're meant to just keep giving, and this can happen in um, even missionary service in terms of um, people being called to sacrifice their life for the sake of God. It can be that kind of spiritual abuse as well. And, but the idea of just giving yourself until there's nothing left, until you're dead, until it, you're totally empty, or dying to yourself so that who you are has to somehow fundamentally die because there's something wrong, all of those things I think are key, um, can be central to forms of spiritual trauma in a whole range of different contexts and situations. Um, and so I, I think that recognising that if we get Christian theology, if we twist it and um, allow people to run with it in a way that uh, aligns, um, for me, when it aligns with patriarchal power, mm-hmm. but when it aligns with, with power dynamics generally in the church too, um, always have to have you know, be very alert when theology happens to fit very neatly to forms of power that can be abused, you know, and whereas the, the canonic self-emptying is about a life-giving, an infilling of the life of God and that life coming through you, so it's actually generative and creative, not so it leaves you dead and with nothing to offer um, and uh, no sense of self and who you are and being affirmed for who you are. Uh, so I think it's watching those those pieces, and you mentioned also uh, having the God gloss on things. Mm. There's sometimes in churches the the leader in a church can use the kind of language of you know it's not um it, it's not me you're hurting it's god you're hurting sort of language as if that leader has god like you know so they they act they take the place of god and that can be incredibly abusive and as you say how can you argue with god and when that person can use choose to use their power in that way um, it, it can leave someone um, feeling you know, very vulnerable and with things that take a lot of years to recover from. Yeah. yeah. And it, uh, the, the message that I can remember largely picking up as a young person, especially when it came to anything around um, sex and sexuality, was a very strong thing in the movement I was a part of, is almost like the faith leader saying, we're on your side against the sin here. We're, we're going to side with you to to get rid of this, the temptation, whatever it might be, that that was a big, big thing in the youth groups that I was a part of. And what it does is it sort of jettisons a part of yourself away and makes you view that inherently as the bad thing, the thing you need to get rid of. And it also, it, I guess it leads me to a question specifically probably for you two, um, Sue and Andrew, because I, I can see obviously that this faith tradition is the maybe the most meaningful, beautiful, life-giving part of, of your life. Yet I wonder, do you think, do you ever think it might have been an easier, less harmful life if you'd grown up no nowhere near a church, which is a really maybe a, a big question. But do you think if you'd escaped any of the this having the God gloss on it, do you think it would have been easier? Uh, easier, I, I don't know. I mean, look, as uh, I wouldn't want to downplay the 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 foundational roots that have shaped who I am and uh, it would be interesting to kind of work out how to um, how to operate without those but look um, is it the, I, I, th- I think the thing for me um, what what happens for me is that the institution has become emblematic the institution has become if you like the abuser and and that's uh, 
you know, it would be nice to be able to walk away from that. Um, but I'm not wanting to equate what I've experienced in any way to, you know, domestic abuse or domestic violence situations. But there's a lot of, um, you know, when you say about would it be nice to have it, well, not to be part of it. At the moment, um, you know, one, one of the impacts of it for me is that my whole livelihood is tied up now with being part of an institutional church mm-hmm. and I can't just step away you know, because of 40 years of being told that I can't have a partner, um, that um, any relationship that I have um, is is damned or inappropriate, I don't have a partner to support me to make transitions out of this abusive relationship. I don't have the resources behind me to make choices. And so there is an element of um, that kind of like financial entrapment. Um, that's part of it. Uh, but then you balance that with a call to ministry and a, and a feeling that, um, you know, that there's something that I can contribute and be part of for what's going on. So that doesn't really answer your question, would it be nicer not to have had it? Um, I mean, it's all very speculative, isn't it? Um, I mean, the reality is, is that um, we've now got three generations of young of people who have lived that experience and have not had uh lived lived the not having institutional church in their life and um for whom we are a complete irrelevance and um who have their own struggles and that kind of stuff but have voted with their feet to say that um yep the institution is um and I wouldn't even say, you know, it's too toxic for me. It's just such an irrelevance. It's not even something I'm even going to bother to think about. So you might be, it might be worth talking to um, some Gen Ys and some millennials to um, get a sense of what it's like to grow up without that shape of the church around you. I think it's interesting, Andrew, too. You said earlier the the part of the strength and the power, the negative power of, of spiritual trauma is that um, the very thing that has been life-giving and beautiful and has held you and given great meaning um, is also the same part of connected to the institution that's hurt you. When you've, you've grown up and you've experienced goodness, real goodness and beauty and freedom, you don't jettison that from your life. So you hold on yeah. to that, and I think it, it, it certainly took me a long way. I wish I hadn't had uh, some of the, the kind of fundamentalist sort of conditioning that I'd had. I, I know because that still sits within me, and I still have to – and it's sort of been a gradual growth of learning to accept that and see it and notice it when it, when it appears, and instead of trying to kind of exercise it from my being and just to recognise why I got caught up in that. And part of that was the, the incredible joy of discovering a faith that was life-giving. Mm. Um, so learning to accommodate all of it yes I would rather have not had some of it because I wouldn't be having to deal with some of the things I'm dealing with if I hadn't had um, some things that messages that were very harmful and self-diminishing over a period of many years that I've had to then slowly kind of work through but at the same time the story that has held me in the church and the symbols that hold me um, I think actually have worked to empower me and so that when I did find life-giving spaces and for me the Anglican Church has been an incredibly life-giving space because suddenly the things that were abusive structures just weren't there for me 
Um, and so it, it ushers in a time of healing and now I can connect back with what those beautiful origins, yeah. you know, um, and it's helping to heal the stuff that, that was still having a long reach into my life and causing harm. And I think something, a really interesting point that you made as well, Andrew, that, that stuck out to me was that for the most part, the the people who cause this spiritual or religious trauma in institutions as you're you know, maybe growing up as a young person, for the for the most part, they are not evil, malicious people intent on causing you great damage. Now, obviously, there are experiences and stories of that, and that's a, a different conversation altogether. But for the most part, I, I think back to my youth group, and I know I've shared the story before that, that I was made in um, high school to sign the true love waits card saying I'll save sex for marriage and I make this declaration under God mm. and I invite God to watch every act I do and whatever else and I have to sign that. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember signing it. I found it quite recently again and um, I was just looking at this thing, you know, that I, that I had to sign and, and realising that this thing and and the the I guess the programming that came with it was deeply damaging even beyond a, a, a sex point of view it was deeply damaging in that I think it made me a bit of a jerk in late mm. high school because I was I look back and I realized I didn't love my friends I judged my friends I felt like that's what I had to do that you know they're all going around the wrong path doing the wrong things and I really don't think I was a very compassionate understanding person for a number of those years as a result of it but then I think about the youth leader who invited those people along and he would have been 23, 24. He was just doing what, you know, he had been told was right. He probably had all the same baggage and all the same wounding that he was then passing on. And so there is something, um, I don't know, something about this whole religious and spiritual trauma, which is that the people who have caused it to people largely, I don't think are intentionally harming others they just don't realise the damage of what they're passing on. Do you think that's a fair statement? Yeah, look, I, and I think it, it taps into that whole stuff around, oh, look, privilege and um, that, that heteronormativity and all of those things where your worldview is kind of presented to you as this is what is normal and anyone who doesn't fit into that worldview is aberrant and so therefore your job is to go and to... Um, you know, fix their aberrancy so that the relationship with anyone who doesn't fit in is is a very patronising and very um, um, unloving uh, way of doing things. Like I, I would also say, I've started using the language here, those who choose the conservative evangelical lifestyle are choosing <laughs> a set of <laughs> biblical hermeneutics um, and are choosing a way of looking at the world. So you are actually culpable. Like you're making active choices to step into a worldview now. And so that is no longer really an excuse that cuts it anymore. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so people are, and and it, and because we're in an environment that is becoming increasingly binary and increasingly radicalised to the end, um, people choosing a conservative evangelical point of view are actively making statements and choices and um, and 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 taking on board theologies and practices that are inherently toxic and so um, one of the things that's very difficult you know to be an Anglican at the moment so National Synod for me was a huge triggering event that you know I'm what five six weeks 
uh, down the track from that because that whole conversation at the, the very core of our church well, is a, um, a culture war in which people like me are the collateral damage in the middle of it. And so all of the, the kind of traumatic stress symptoms, including, you know, the potential for self-harm, um, the, uh, all the other different um, things were all very real for me right now because people have chosen to follow a biblical hermeneutic that is inherently toxic. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm not very forgiving right now. Mm. Um, and so I'm at the point where I can't be in the room um, because the, the, one of the symptoms for, uh, well, my, the way I experience religious trauma is because you don't necessarily have a specific abuser, people become emblematic of that. And um, so for me, anyone, and this isn't real, this is what, you know, it is real, it's real for me, but what happens for me and this is what I'm working with is that people who represent the choice to follow a uh, conservative evangelical lifestyle trigger trauma responses in me and mm. I can't physically be in the room with them. So I've had to withdraw right now from any form of um, institutional life other than the life of the parish where um, people who choose the conservative evangelical lifestyle are present. I, can't, I don't feel safe in the room and it triggers my physical and uh, emotional um, trauma responses so so it's a big deal for me right now yeah. and I just do need to say that um, I'm dealing with that um, by specifically I have a mental health plan dealing with a therapist who has experience in trauma counseling I have a spiritual director with experience and background and training in trauma um, and I have a whole scaffolding of, um, of health and mental health people around me um, because the potential for that um, triggering of symptoms for me right now is absolutely real yeah. and so when to go to a place where people will go will stand up and say oh my strongly held beliefs you know are being trampled on here and say your strongly held beliefs are a death sentence to many people and it and then you get gaslighted and people yeah. say are you overreacting and all those kind of things and uh, you get diminished and you get squashed and uh and it's incre and it just takes the cycle around so um yeah so i'm i'm not in a very forgiving and open place at the moment so my own personal comprehensiveness which mm. is the buzzword at the moment has real limits because it's a life-threatening issue for me, and I think that you know that's our, a healthy, healthy limit. And the rest of it, as we sit and think about what might keep keep people in that really conservative lifestyle choice, you know, is I think uh, maintained a lot by the patterns of communication we have in this world. I think people are siloing. We all know this. They silo in Facebook groups and so on. It actually keeps affirming that choice. You must do this and that, that sense of this great fear that the whole thing, Project Christianity, will be lost unless we hang on to, to this and that we are in some way oppressed can can be self-affirming if you stay in those silo groups. Oh, look, and the, and the dynamic of the abuser becoming the victim yes. is, you know, and that yeah. was yeah. absolutely played out at National Synod with the Archbishop of Sydney getting up in tears and we are now in an oppressed minority and uh, you know oh, our very core of our being is being um, uh, challenged and and all of that and I go welcome to my world 
welcome to the experience of every person who doesn't fit your cisgendered heteronormative um, agenda. Yeah, yeah. You know, so don't ask me to feel sorry for you. Can I just um, touch on Andrew? Because I think you've made a really important distinction in, in what you've just shared in the last five minutes. And thank you for sharing that. I can imagine <laughs> it's not easy to share. You can tell um, that the pit of rage oh. is, 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 um, is fairly close to the skin. And that's one of the dangers is that that can gets projected onto to people who ultimately don't deserve it. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, well, I, I just wanted to mention, though, that, that um, I think you've made a really important point. For those who maybe uh, don't understand the depths of what trauma actually is and what trauma does to the body. People who think maybe trauma or, or their definition of trauma is just that you've had some bad experiences in the past and some hard memories or whatever, realising that actually trauma is an entirely different beast altogether. Mm. And and you mentioned this at the very beginning of the conversation, but one with physical mm. um, manifestations. And mm. what was the big book that was out on that? Was it The Body Keeps the Score? I think it might have been yeah. the, the big yeah. book on that. Um, I I'm, I'm just think it's probably worthwhile just talking a little bit about this because, you know, I can imagine those who choose that conservative lifestyle as you um, so beautifully put it, mm. I can imagine to them, they would be thinking blindly and naively that they're walking into conversations around beliefs, mm. not realizing what they're actually doing is almost, just, you know, stabbing right into your soul again. Yeah. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about what, how the trauma, if this is something you're comfortable mm. doing, but what, when we speak about trauma, what it is that it does to your body? Um, so there is a couple of things. Look, and again, I would hold this relatively lightly, but one would have to ask the question why in a family that does not have a history of cancer, I have had cancer, severe life-threatening cancer twice. Now, I'd want to hold that fairly lightly, but, um, and I have a range of uh, autoimmune um, issues all of which are triggered by stress, you know, so you can go, oh, I guess, well, you've had a fairly stressful life or whatever. Um, in terms of, so this happened for me just this last week, I went to a function and entered into a space uh, which I didn't feel safe in because uh, there was a triggering, there was a person there who triggered, you know, who was emblematic of, um, you know, uh, stale pale male. <laughs> Um, and so I felt myself uh, physically shrink. Uh, I felt myself uh, try and disappear into the woodwork of the wall that I was next to. Um, I found myself... Um, uh, it felt like a crushing weight on me um, and, uh, and, and, a, and a, uh, the flight mechanism uh, kicked right in. And so as soon as I could safely get out of there, I got out of there. Um, last week, you know, we have another religious fundamentalist who goes into a, uh, a gathering space for queer people and sets the gun off in Oslo. You know, so that's the reality. And it's fed by often well-meaning people who just promulgate really toxic theologies because those well-meaning people, when an extremist hears that, it empowers them yeah. to say that I am right to go and do this extreme action. Um, it says to a young fellow or woman, young woman in a country town, when they hear on the local radio the local preacher making some stupid statement that they have no place in this world. And so 
um, self-harm and suicide are real um, threats to people suffering from um, religious and spiritual mm. trauma. Mm. Yeah, and it extends, it even extends to people who are inside the, the conservative evangelical tent. Um, you know, we have lots of recovering um, conservative evangelicals in our community who, who once they are able to escape because of they were in there because of the fear you know that the fear keeps you in there once once they've um, escaped and basically we spent a lot of time doing essentially debrief sort of ministry really um, they begin to understand the trauma that they carry because many of the same messages um, were actually being applied to them too for all sorts of reasons so that mm -hmm. they so there's toxicity breeding toxicity. It's like mm. almost like intergenerational trauma. It's um, well, it is, yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's deeply embedded. And the other thing I'd say too is don't um, be um, assume that uh, this is done by people on either extreme. Mm. Um, in some ways, moderates, moderate progressives are your worst enemy. Yeah. Um, because when, you, when you're faced with extreme points of view, you know, with someone who's chosen the conservative evangelical lifestyle, you know what you're dealing with. One of the more insidious things is moderate progressives who will um, tell you to your face that you're loved and all of that kind of stuff, but their actions, like, for example, um, you know, people who will vote against particular things because they have held up as more sacred the idea of unity mm. rather than integrity. Mm. Um, that we don't want to have uncomfortable conversations, so we won't um, engage with that stuff, those types of things in our church because we don't want to make uncomfortable. Or we need to accommodate and include folk who don't believe in accommodation and inclusion. And so that's, mm. the, the, you know, that's just as toxic as overtly homophobic or whatever um, theologies mm. or practices. Yeah. The, the thing that gets me is in that conservative, really conservative limiting space, it's an ontological attack on humanity, mm. on being human, on being, you know, that, 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 you know, those, that the idea of original sin in its various guises is incredibly yeah. destructive. Mm. It basically says you have no hope because you are. Mm. You mm. are, therefore, you are damned. Mm. So it's an ontological attack on everybody. Yeah. But I think it's really interesting that there's a, in, in the last couple of decades, there's been an absolute heightened awareness of uh, the role of trauma, multi generational and um, uh, single incidence trauma, but also collective trauma, um, community trauma. I mean, I come from Tasmania and they talk about the dark stain um, of both the attempted genocide of the Tasmanian Indigenous people and uh, of the, uh, the way in which um, uh, convicts... And, they, and, they, and I kind of, in some levels, feel I've got a, a sense of that, that um, this kind of embodied and imbued and deeply, deeply sense of um, uh, darkness and that um, trauma-informed um, 
practices, uh, whether it be spiritual direction, whether it be counselling, whether it be therapy, but I'd also suggest even in terms of our practice in church about how we um, how we preach and and how we engage with conversation. Um, that kind of um, you know, and it sounds like you have kind of looked at that kind of before. Just how significant that is, and I would <laughs> suggest that you know if we're looking at our formation processes for new priests for our um, you know lay workers and stuff like that a deep sense of um, how to engage with trauma in a um, in a healing way is going to be a really ongoing um, challenge to us I think what Dom said before about helping people to understand that what they are triggering it's not they may be feeling a sense of hurt or a sense of um, kind of being a bit isolated in their theological views or something and that bears no relationship to the kind of trauma response that it might be having in someone else. And so it's, it's mm. learning to understand that that is a whole qualitatively, a totally different experience of isolation and impact on, in, on your body and yourself and your psyche and your mm. whole being. Mm. You know, something comes to mind for me uh, at the very beginning of 2020, before the pandemic kicked off, um, alongside a couple of other people, I started a Facebook group uh, that Sue knows about because Sue's, Sue joined it as well. And initially it was a community of... Uh, people from, I guess, all different faith backgrounds in the sort of southeast Queensland area who were looking to come together to to form some sort of a new community, people who'd been burned, who had carried some sort of religious spiritual trauma. And um, and initially, I think the, the thinking was that this could, you know, be a place, a safe place for people to come together and, and create something new. What became clear in the first few meetings, we would have, within a couple of weeks, there were 100 people in this, this group, you know, it... it grew unlike anything I've ever known in a sense and what became clear was that actually you know this if the pandemic hadn't happened what I think we all kind of needed was almost a support group um, rather than a new service or anything at that particular time we almost more needed as the conversations that kept coming up as we sat around in circles we almost more needed a support group to process what we had uh, all experienced in the, the conservative evangelical church and it reminds me a little bit um, of, I don't, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but um, the Irish theologian Pete Rollins, how he created the Omega course, which was meant to be the, the Alpha course gets you into that sort of Christianity. And he created the Omega course to help move help people out, out of it. Yeah. But, but it is, I, I think, quite seriously understanding that um, maybe a, a really legitimate ministry avenue might be creating support groups and spaces where people can come together and say this was the trauma that that upbringing gave me or this was the trauma that my time there gave me because I suppose as I'm hearing your story Andrew it seems to me maybe that one of the most helpful healing parts has been the moments you've realized you aren't alone in in this story. Mm. Having said that there is a caveat on that that um, those types of groups and experiences need to be so carefully yeah. facilitated because they can become occasions of triggering of trauma in themselves and being immersed in um, so I joined a Facebook group um, around a whole range of stuff and in the end I've had to kind of step away from that because just the the constant hearing of other people's pain um, I don't have the 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 capacity to carry that at, uh, anymore and so yeah support groups are one of the absolute pathways to healing um, but very careful facilitation and um, uh, stru support structures around them absolutely important mm. yeah 
Well, I'm hopeful that hearing your story today might help some people who maybe still have a role in that um, evangelical conservative lifestyle to at least reflect a little bit deeper and and perhaps, um, you know, just if not even more importantly, people who have experienced some sort of spiritual religious trauma themselves to be able to name it, to label Mm. it and to know that um, what has been done to them is not okay and is not right and that there are ways to heal. I I wanted to... um, to finish with this poem that I came across. It was just this morning, this conversation. There's this excellent poem from Tukaram that I found um, that seemed to, to fit so much of this conversation. So I I'm just uh, hope you don't mind me sharing a little excerpt here where he writes, uh, Look what the insanity of righteous knowledge can do. Crusade and maim thousands in wanting to convert that which is already gold into gold. <laughs> And I read that this morning and thought when it comes to religious trauma, try, the, the uh, attempt to convert that which is already gold into gold it sums up so much of the damage that's been done to you, that's been done to so many others. And, um, and this is just, this is something that, uh, it, it's, it's ruined lives, it's cost lives. So maybe as we, we wrap the conversation up, Andrew, would, for people who are listening to this who maybe have noticed... Um, some similarities in their stories or some areas of trauma with it that are present in them. Um, what would you suggest to them are ways that they could perhaps go about beginning the conversation of addressing these and healing these? Because I imagine it, it, it's not something yet that is too mainstreamed in terms of knowing where to turn with, you know, with these awarenesses and these insights. Um, I've got to suggest the really bad thing because on one level, Dr. Google is not your friend, but the other side of it is that we have access to information that, you know, 10 years ago we wouldn't have had. Um, And it was helpful for me. I was pointed in the direction of, you might think of having a look at this stuff about religious trauma. And and so I did that. The other thing I would say is... um, you know, like I, I am a great believer in the mental health plan. I mean, you need to have a doctor that you trust um, and, and perhaps to ask for um, a referral to someone who is experienced in trauma-based counselling or therapy. Um, religious trauma or spirituality-based um, counselling and therapy is probably still a little bit of a niche thing in, in Australia. Um, but uh, uh, having the, uh, the, the, the conversation and you do have to suck it a bit and see because for, depending on the background of, your, of some counsellors or therapists you, you know, they see um, religion and spirituality actually as a pathology so you have to be very cautious about the type of um, therapist and because um, uh, I'd say one of the damaging things that could happen for someone um, and, and which I've been lucky to avoid is being hooked up with a therapist who's coming from an ideology that sees, um, yeah, those things as a mm-hmm. as a uh, a pathology rather yeah. than an integral part of the messiness of uh, trying to move towards um, uh, wholeness. Well, we might have to have another conversation at some point on the podcast about trauma in a bit more depth because it is such a a deep issue, such a complex issue and one that we are still, I suppose, learning so much about. But um, for now, Andrew, again, I just want to thank you um, so, so much for, for sharing so vulnerably and for being yourself with us. It's been a real gift. 
Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about myself. I'm very happy. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favourite things. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we will be back with another episode of the podcast soon.